Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I'm your host, Louisa Hallmeyer-Wacker. Let's get started with this week's episode. Significant progress has been made in several fields of medicine towards personalization. We've addressed some of these in previous episodes. Today, I want to examine how personalization has been incorporated in reproductive medicine. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Helen O'Neill, an expert in the field of reproductive science on the podcast today. She's a lecturer in reproductive molecular genetics and the director for the master's program in reproductive science and women's health at University College London. Her research focuses on pre-implantation embryo development and the use of genome editing to assess understanding and treatment of disorders of infertility. Beyond her work as an academic, she recently co-founded Hertility Health with the aim to provide women with an easier way to get personalized insights into their reproductive health. Helen, thank you very much for finding the time to talk to us today. I look forward to our conversation and to learning more about your work as a scientist, educator, and entrepreneur. Thank you. I look forward to speaking to you too. So you hold an honors degree in genetics, a master's in prenatal genetics and fetal medicine, and you obtained your PhD in the Department of Stem Cell Biology and developmental genetics. It seems like you've had an interest in genetics and more specifically in reproductive genetics for a long time. So what got you interested in this field of study in the first place? I think my interest stemmed from the moment I was born. Um, I am an identical twin. So the idea about genetics and how I am similar, in fact, identical to my twin sister has always been a driving fascination for me. I always looked at her and thought we looked so different. I always thought we behaved so differently also. And yet everybody else looks and sees the exact same thing. So for me, the idea of studying something that would give me insights into what makes us so unique or makes us the same um, has always been in the back of my in the back of my mind. Yeah, that's for sure a very, very unique story on why you study uh, something or why you're interested in something. So let's dive right in into reproductive medicine. When a lot of people hear about reproductive medicine, they think IVF, infertility, and women's health. So as a researcher in this field, how would you respond to that? I think that there's a lot of truth in in that, but there, the field of reproductive medicine is so huge. It, it has really propelled our understanding into women's health, but more specifically obstetrics and pregnancy and the outcomes in which we can now look into uh, the mother's womb during pregnancy and see, see the fetus as it grows through scanning, but also test that fetus through means such as putting a needle in and taking a little bit of piece of tissue. But equally now that has evolved into non-invasive prenatal testing. So there, I, I feel, yes, there is a lot to do with reproductive medicine and its association with um, in vitro fertilization and fertility. But also there is a huge field that must not be forgotten in obstetrics and newborn screening and in utero screening also. And maybe the next generation will be editing or looking at testing the germline. 
Yeah, and well, that's something that you've uh, focused your research on as well, looking at uh, genome editing, potentially germline editing, and CRISPR technology has really revolutionized that field. So could you go into a bit of detail how the ability to precisely edit genetic material has changed reproductive health? And maybe a second part to that question is, will this technology lead to a more personalized approach in the future? Sure. I feel that genome editing as a technology is one that is beautifully positioned to be embedded into any form of research, any form of science and any form of medicine. It has propelled our ability to interrogate the genome at specific and precise uh, locations. And it has also improved our understanding of diseases that previously we had very crude methods of understanding. I guess the the most basic way of saying that we can use genome editing is that is to compare it to previous methods. So previously we would almost have to wait for a disease to, to pop up in the genome and then you study how somebody is affected by it. So when you study how somebody is affected by a disease, you can look at their own genome and say where in their genome has there been a mutation and can we ascribe this this specific mutation to this specific disease. So for that, you need multiple people with the same disorder. And once we've found out the specific gene that could be involved in causation of a disorder, then we can start to interrogate that gene. Now, the ways in which we can do that are very time consuming. Um, I I've spent many a, a late night in the lab trying to create mutations in cell lines. The work that, for example, took me two years to do during my PhD would now take approximately three to four weeks, um, which is a little bit disheartening for me after spending so long doing doing uh, genome editing the difficult way. But it's also very exciting for the next generation that we can now propel our, uh, propel our abilities in the lab so much further. That gives us a very good understanding of uh, the scale that CRISPR allows us to uh, look at in terms of genetics and certain, in terms of causation for disease and potentially treatments. How would that translate to reproductive health um, specifically? So there are a number of ways in which this can translate to reproductive health and reproductive medicine specifically. Um, I guess one of the more controversial areas is an area known as germline genome editing. In other words, that you would use CRISPR genome editing to actually edit a human in its earliest form. I guess you can't call it a human in the earliest form, but edit an embryo. So you can use this to, it could be used as an adaptation to current testing methods. So when you mentioned that I work in pre-implantation uh, embryo development, what that essentially means is that when, when a human egg is fertilized by the sperm and it starts to grow prior to, prior to the point where it would implant it is known as pre-implantation. I'm, I'm, making, I'm making the word pre-implantation, I'm spelling out the word pre-implantation for you here. Um, but I guess it's essential to, to visualize that because prior to the implantation of the embryo into the womb, we can actually grow that embryo outside of the mother's body. So it means that we have amazing ways in which we can study and learn about 
the earliest form of human development. Now, if you think about the ability to grow a human embryo prior to implantation, well, there are a number of ways that we can study that embryo and potentially edit it. So when I speak about the more controversial forms of CRISPR genome editing in the germline, this is what I mean, that you would be able to take this early embryo prior to its implantation. And if you suspected that it had uh, a mutation or was carrying a certain disease, that you could use genome editing to specifically go into that embryo and correct that mutation prior to it implanting and prior to it growing inside the womb. Now, how this is perceived is um, certainly a uh, it's a controversial area. Some people believe that, that we should not be editing any human embryos. Some people that believe that where you could also use this is to edit the sperm or edit the egg. Um, uh, those are the progenitor cells. And yet there are others who feel that there are plenty of things that we are doing already in the field of reproductive medicine, in the field of IVF, that are technically and indirectly editing those embryos anyway. Essentially, I, I feel it's so important that we do not neglect the epigenetic changes that are happening in a very, happening in a very dynamic genome. So the early embryonic genome is so dynamic. It's constantly changing, altering. It goes from using just the maternal or the mother's um, genetics to help build its early steps to using its own genome in a process called embryonic genome activation. And when you put an embryo, which would be developing inside the uterus and you take it out of the uterus, and you grow it in culture media conditions in, in a dish uh, and you grow it in a an incubator, all of these exogenous forces that are not innate are bound to have transgenerational changes or just generational or, or genetic changes on the embryo itself. It is we can try as much as we want to mirror the uterine environment, but this, as you can imagine, is a very difficult thing to do. So in terms of editing a situation or editing the epigenetics i think we're quite i think we're already already doing that but again people find a lot more of a problem when it comes to making purposeful changes in the genome yeah i think that for a lot of people um it brings up kind of fear of a dystopian future um where we start with editing uh, potential diseases and end up editing more and more of things that are potentially not diseases or even enhancement. So I would like to dive a bit more into that from your perspective. Yeah, what are the ethical concerns that you see in the scientific community and in society and have they in some way changed the way you conduct research? Um, most certainly they have changed the way in which I conduct research because um, you cannot separate the ethics and public perception of things. Uh, there is a trickle-down effect when it comes to public perception of a scientific practice. And we are we are ruled, ruled and bound by um, public perception in terms of our ability to pursue certain areas of reproductive medicine and also um, receive grant funding for that. 
So I I think, unfortunately, there's far too much of an emphasis on dystopian futures and unwelcome forms of, of the use of genome editing. Um, this is the type of argument that comes up time and time again. It came up when we first studied embryonic stem cells. It kept, came up when we first had the ability to clone. It came up back in the... 70s when we started using recombinant DNA technology. The same arguments were used whereby people were able to project their fears and project their um, ideas about what it could potentially be used for and focus those fears and focus those potentiality uh, into, into negative aspects of a technology. And the truth is we are bound by ethical norms, we are bound by ethical laws, and we are bound by real laws. And we are unable to uh, pursue those routes, nor do we wish to. So unfortunately, I feel like the the ability to convey information about what we can and cannot do is so important. So it's really important for me as a scientist and a communicator to communicate my science, um, communicate my desires as a scientist, and especially in this field, to be fully transparent about my desire to do good. And I feel that Every single scientist I know has the same ethos that they really feel that there's so much potential for genome editing, um, not just for, you know, discovery into diseases, but discovery full stop. We know less about the early human embryo than we do about a mouse embryo, than we do about a Drosophila or fruit fly embryo or a fish or a worm. We, we have been able to dedicate more research um, into those because of the ethics that is involved in studying early human embryos and, and I suppose embryos in general. Um, and, and yet there is so much for us to learn and genome editing really could open up the, the field for us and to help us to understand the, the current black holes in our knowledge. Yeah, and I think now that we've addressed the ethical concerns and may maybe started with the negative side or the more critical side first, I want to yeah give you the space to talk about um, some of the applications of CRISPR that you find especially exciting. So I know that you've worked on CRISPR genome editing and for the treatment of sex chromosome and neuromuscular related disorders. Um, so could you talk about an application of CRISPR that you've worked on and that you see evolving over time and that you find especially exciting? Sure. So my research has been actually predominantly focused on the safest ways that we can deliver genome editing components into an embryo. And when I speak about my research, I think it's important that I, my, my, my obsession is safe, safe practice. So we, as I said, there are many things that we have yet to learn about early human embryonic development. Um, but there's also very many things that we have to learn about um, genome editing. And genome editing is seen as a technology, but I think it's it's very important to, to remember that it is a collection of technologies. And we are using this collection of technologies on a, a very dynamic, as I said, um, form of biology, and that is human reproduction. So we're essentially working with two very quickly moving targets. The first is quickly moving in in, in the field of genome editing. The gene, that is moving in terms of its progression, um, and the other is moving in terms of its dynamic growth as a as a one cell that turns into 200, 200 plus cells. Um, and so I think we have to take things uh, one piece at a time. The the first thing that I, I like that I have 
focused on is the timing of delivery. Um, Another aspect that I focus on is the method of delivery. So whether we use um, needles to inject the nucleic acid into the embryo or whether we can do electroporation and, and, and shock the cell membrane to successfully put in the genome editing components into an embryo. Um, the other methods that I have looked at are uh, the the effect of mosaicism. So mosaicism is a word that is constantly used in the in the field of um, assisted reproduction, and it's usually associated with uh, aneuploidy. So when you have mosaicism in an embryo, it's, you're usually talking about how many of those cells in that embryo are have a normal copy of chromosomes versus those that have an abnormal con- quotient of chromosomes. And generally, if you test a clump of cells in an embryo, and some of them are found to have a normal amount of embryos, and the other the other cells are found to have an abnormal, that embryo is then known as mosaic. But the type of mosaicism that I am interested in is if I am to make an edit in an embryo at the one cell stage, and that embryo continues to grow into two and four and eight cells, and the edit that I have made only stays in one of those cells, or it only goes to two or three of those cells, then that for me is CRISPR-derived mosaicism. So I think there's a, as an important distinction in those two, but I'm very interested in how we can replicate or successfully ensure that the edit in one cell goes into every single cell. So that if you were to correct an embryo that had a mutation for a a very um, debilitating disorder, that we could ensure that that embryo was free from the disorder for, for transfer, for implantation. Yeah. And as I understood, if you have a CRISPR-derived mosaicism, then that wouldn't be safe, uh, right? Because you would um, you would create uh, an embryo where part of the cells or yeah, a fraction of the cells would have the alterations and the other wouldn't. How do you, uh, from a laboratory perspective, how do you uh, how do you test that? How do you how do you work on these technologies? It's um, again through through a collection of technologies, but none of them are are perfect. When it comes to, I think I feel the the CRISPR side or the genome editing side of things is moving faster than ever, and it's and yet the embryo embryological side of things is a little bit more slow moving. And I I say that because it is due to the physical difficulty of doing research on human embryos. Um, and that is largely to do with ethics. Um, and then there's the physical difficulty of, of disaggregating a human embryo into individual single cells and, and testing those single cells. I think the, the, the third important factor to acknowledge there is the cost involved in, in sequencing, which, albeit that it is plummeting, it's still very expensive as a, as a researcher to do that. So, so you do um, sequence the entire genome or the entire single cells um, to make sure uh, that there is no other alterations that have happened? Um, or could you go into a bit more detail um, how you use sequencing in general? So what we what we do is we take um, we take a clump of cells from the embryo and hope that they are representative, which is uh, again there are there are multiple ways of hoping that we can get proper and reliable insights into an embryo. Um, One of the evolving fields um, is a non-invasive way of looking at embryo development. And that is by looking at the culture media. If you can can interrogate the culture media, 
that has been that the embryo has been growing in, we're gleaning more insights into um, testing an embryo non-invasively. So in other words, that we wouldn't have to rely on taking a big biopsy or a clump of cells from the embryo at the blastocyst stage. So it's been interesting to hear about your research and what you've been focusing on. In your opinion, out of this, or in general, in terms of genome editing and gene editing, what would be the first technology that would be translated into clinical practice? Well, there are those who feel that um, current methods for testing embryos are limited in that while we can while we can reliably test embryos using pre-implantation genetic testing methods, and, and this involves taking a clump of cells, as I mentioned, and analyzing them. There are others that feel that this is insufficient, um, not necessarily due to the testing process, but due to the lack of sufficient embryos. Let's say you have 10 embryos and five of them are carrying the mutation. So you can't use those. And four of them do not develop sufficiently and you only have one left for transfer, which fails. Then you're left with no embryos left and no future child. Uh, if on the other hand, you took those 10 embryos, the five that contain the mutation, you could correct that mutation and you have essentially doubled the number of embryos that you have available for transfer. Um, this is a definitely a technology which is uh, controversial for sure, but it is also, I think, um, a real eye-opener and it is giving hope to a lot of families who are carrying rare and um, devastating diseases. Yeah, it's been really interesting to hear your insights uh, into, into reproductive health, uh, genome editing, Uh, or germline editing more specifically. And I know it's a very controversial uh, topic where a lot of people have ethical concerns or other kinds of concerns. Um, but I, I think it's an important topic to talk about nonetheless because the technology is progressing or even there already. Um, and it's important to educate um, both the scientific community as well as uh, individuals about what's possible and both risks as well as benefits. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. You can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To download the show notes for this episode, visit our website pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T dot com. The show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. Make sure to check them out. And don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating and leave a comment. It will help us make this show better. And now, let's get back to the interview. Next, I want to focus a bit on your work as an entrepreneur. So in early 2019, you co-founded Hertility Health, uh, which aims to provide women with an easier way to get personalized insights into their digital biological clock and reproductive health. So what led you to launch the startup? For me, it was as much a personal endeavor as it was a professional endeavor. Um, I 
working in the field of reproductive medicine would almost weekly have people, friends or friends of friends contact me about their own reproductive health. Um, women are very fortunate in that we have in the incredible capacity to carry life but we are also unfortunate in that we uh, almost 50 percent of women suffer from some form of gynecological pathology and very often that gets ignored or it gets mistreated and from the most part women who have problems when it comes to their periods or abnormal cycles or pain are just put on the pill so they end up masking their symptoms and we are definitely a group of women or a generation of women who are putting our careers first and so we deprioritize our reproductive capacity and our reproductive needs to the point where more women than ever uh, in fact, I think double the number of women are childless over 40 without choice. Now, if you choose not to have children, then I salute you. But if, on the other hand, you it, it, you have always wanted to have children and you are not in the position yet to do that, then it's a very difficult time because we are not prioritizing women when it comes to having a family. We are now expected to be the breadwinner, the bread baker, we are expected to do many different things now. And, and unfortunately, ha having time to have a family is not one of those things. So we essentially wanted to set up fertility health to enable women to check in with their fertility and check in with their reproductive health. Um, we do this by uh, allowing you to check from the comfort of your own home by sending a um, just a reproductive health kit. So it's a, just a simple kit that you answer a questionnaire that we have clinically curated. This questionnaire we've worked with endocrinologists, specialists in fertility and reproductive medicine and ourselves to create this questionnaire, which will allow us to understand which hormones we should test you for. And if I understood correctly, you founded this company um, also with your twin sister. Is that correct? I, I just yes. I just thought that was interesting because um, that kind of goes back to our, the very beginning of our interview. Um. <laughs> it's funny we we we've, we've come along on it. We we definitely started on very different journeys. I actually found found this with um, a colleague of mine who is an ovarian biologist, uh, Dr. Natalie Gatroy, and she and I both had the same frustrations about not being able to check in on our our own reproductive health, despite knowing the risks ourselves, and, and we were putting the risks, which is the weight game. Um, forward the whole time and we began this and I my sister is a uh, a lawyer who works in corporate the corporate world so she uh, was we were constantly vying for her attention to uh, to help us out and when she came on board she really she really felt like the mission was something that was so worthy of her attention that she has joined the, the team. And, and so we, I feel very, very fortunate to be, after many years of doing very different things, working alongside her now. Well, it's always good to get, um, I think, input from a lot of different areas. And I think having someone from the corporate world helps a lot of scientists make the jump into entrepreneurship. Um, just to circle back to fertility health and the service that you offer. So um, you have this questionnaire. Do you collect any kind of biological sample uh, as well? Yes, of course. So essentially the questionnaire is just to help us understand your health needs. So we call it a care questionnaire, which we have curated to enable us to glean insights into your your reproductive 
history, your cycle history and your own your own biometrics, essentially. Um, and from your answers, we will then know which hormones to test you for. So it's, it's very much a tailored, um, a tailored test. Um, we test all sorts of hormones related to your reproduction, but also your, um, your thyroid function, as these are so interconnected. And once we've understood your uh, answers and we know which um, hormones to test you from, then we will send you a kit to your house and you will do a simple uh, blood test. So it's just a, a, a finger prick and we collect some blood and we you put it in a prepaid mailer and it goes to our accredited labs. And then we are able to give you insights into your reproductive health. Um, the important thing is that we will, we have really struggled to understand how it is that reproductive medicine has come so far. And yet when it comes to giving people answers about their bloods and results, the, the way in which we deliver this to patients and to, and to people is, it's so limited. It's, um, the majority of people don't understand what it is they're looking at. The, the results are displayed in picomoles per milliliter, micromoles per, per liter. And it, we've essentially worked very hard to, to make this process as understandable as as, as possible so that everyone can see what is the hormone? Why do we test it? Why are we testing you for this? And what does your result mean? So everything is explained in a very understandable format on a dashboard so that you are able to track, track your symptoms, track your cycles. And from there, we'll give you advice on anything that you would need, whether it's egg freezing or whether you're contemplating having a baby or whether it is that you need, um, endocrine support from an endocrinologist um or just just to be happy that to know where where you're at and one clarifying question for that if you're looking at hormones that uh, change throughout the cycle uh, how do you deal with that if you have a single blood sample at a single point of time so we ask you to test on day three of your cycle so you're asked to test on a specific day, unless we're testing progesterone, in which case we'll do that at day 21. So there are there are explicit guidelines on what day to test. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I did part, part of my PhD. Uh, I, I also collected uh, or I collected blood and I tried to test hormones and um, it was from animals. So it's a bit different, but we had that issue that it was always difficult to determine um what part of the cycle there was they were in using only the hormones i was just i was more from my personal interest okay great well truthfully that kind of leads to why it is that we you know previously women have not been prioritized when it comes to testing at all because of this even animals we use male animals when it comes to research because they don't have the easter cycle so uh, this is again i guess why research into women's health is in its infancy is because women have been excluded in clinical trials and testing for drug development and testing in general so we are creating the world's largest database of female gynecological pathologies we are really hoping to replace the why with well because um, when it comes to all of the different symptoms all of the different um i guess um individual experiences of women through their cycle um I, so i hate to play the devil's advocate please do but, <laughs> so as far as i understand the current focus of fertility health is on female health and fertility but there's always two sides to the coin and so isn't it also important to include men in fertility education and potentially even testing 
Absolutely. Yes. And in fact, we've come so far in our understanding previously, people always ascribed infertility issues to being a female issue. And it's so far from the truth. It went from being from statistics showing that 80 for 80% of infertility was female related to 60% of infertility is female related. And now we acknowledge that 50% of infertility is male factor infertility. And so I, I couldn't agree more that we need to um, include men in the discussion around fertility. Um, we are certainly dealing with that with fertility health, whereby we are also offering a male um, hormone testing panel. Uh, they won't get the same pink box. <laughs> but um, yes, watch this space. So it must be quite hard launching um, a startup with this current COVID situation, uh, especially because uh, you're based in the UK, which is currently still on lockdown. So how how has this influenced um, the startup uh, in general? Um, I'd like to say that it that COVID nineteen, albeit that it is a very difficult time, has actually offered us some silver linings. We are offering the kits not just to any individual woman who wants to be tested but also IVF clinics. So we have partnered with um, IVF clinics so that for the women who cannot attend their appointments quite naturally uh, in person, they can still be tested remotely. So this has actually worked um, well for us to try and rally behind and support some of the IVF clinics that are not able to see their patients. So I feel that it has been quite helpful to women who are desperate to be tested and desperate to start their their treatment um, in assisted reproduction that we can actually come in and and help them. It sounds promising and also like a good opportunity to uh, make contact uh, within clinics uh, and convince doctors that this is a useful thing. Um, yes, they have time. <laughs> yes, they have time on their hands now to listen to us. <laughs> yeah, which is always difficult with clinicians. Yes. Um, so what are the next steps for the startup? Uh, we are hoping to grow. Um, we actually, one of the main drives of this startup is research. So we are founded by researchers and we are absolutely dedicated to really improving uh, the lives of women through further education, through further research. What, when I said we were building the largest data set, what I mean is that these insights that take uh, your biometrics, that take your um, personal history, your cycle history, your medical history, these are really critical in ascertaining the overall outcome when it comes to your ability to conceive. So often we only take a unilateral uh, view of somebody's health and by just looking at their hormone results or just looking at their medical history. And to me, it's, it's fundamental that we collect all of this and using all of it together, we can build a more promising picture for how we can how we can determine, I guess, your fertility potential is only one small aspect of it, but also your reproductive health in general. We are running a clinical trial at the moment, which is looking um, at four different uh, gynecological pathology um, units. One of them is for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Uh, one is endometriosis. The other is pelvic pain. And one is recurrent miscarriage. And we're really hoping to improve the current diagnosis time for conditions like endometriosis, which is shockingly seven and a half years. Um, and we're hoping to bring that down to seven days. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Um, and also, I, I mean, as a, as a woman myself, um, 
I, I think something that's really necessary uh, to have a more open communication uh, and then as well as testing um, in order to improve uh, female health or women's health in general, not just in terms of uh, pregnancy and infertility, but also in terms of information, especially for young uh, young women. Right, exactly. We're, we're really hoping to reach a much younger audience with this, that, you know, all women should care about their reproductive health because it, it impacts so much of your day-to-day life. It's been really inspiring to see you or hear about your success, uh, both as an academic, um, a science communicator and an entrepreneur. So what has it been like to transition between these roles and what have you found the most challenging, especially in this new chapter of being an entrepreneur? For me, it's been really exciting to be able to tie in the things that I'm passionate about, and that is research, um, that is communication about my research and communication about science in general. I feel very lucky that I'm able to do all of the things that excite me and motivate me and bring them to uh, to, to the public through lecturing, through public engagement, but also with fertility and being able to bring reproductive health education and, and information into the hands of every woman and not just be heard by my scientific colleagues or not just be heard at, at research conferences. So for me, it's, uh, it's been an enjoyable transition because I've, I've just embraced the ability to to tie all of my passions into into one big knot and potentially reach a larger audience yes exactly that's exactly it it's been really exciting to hear about fertility health um to end today's interview maybe one last question which is a big question um so what's your outlook on the future of personalized medicine and reproductive health so where will we be in 10 years that's a great question i I feel very passionately about personalized medicine. I think for far too long, we have generalized when it comes to treatment and when it comes to studying um, disorders. For me, the use of a number of technologies in one are going to propel personalized medicine. So that is genetic sequencing and the use of genetics in medicine um, and genome editing, Um, but equally our, our ability to use um, machine learning to interrogate that data. I, I feel like it is so many fields that are propelling personalized medicine forward in a way that previously we just couldn't have done before. So it, it's almost like a tripod effect. It, and, and through through those three methods with genome editing, with sequencing and interrogation of genomes, and also artificial intelligence and and the ability to look at data in previously un, unforeseen ways, this is what gives us a very strong standing point from which we can build upon. I'm excited about the next 10 years. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> well, thank you, Helen, for sharing your insights and expertise on reproductive health, on CRISPR technology, on uh, genome editing in general, uh, and your startup on fertility health, um, and a little bit on women's health advocacy as well. Thank you. Before we end today's episode, could you let our audience know how they can reach out to you and find out more about fertility health? Sure. Um, you can reach me at uh, helen.oneill at ucl.ac.uk or you can find Hertility at hertilityhealth.com, which is fertility with a H. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast online and make sure to share it with a friend. And don't miss out on the next episode yourself. Subscribe to the Personalized Medicine Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and many more. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. Our show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topics of the episode. Engage with us on social media, where we share news and exciting content on personalized medicine. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast or using our handle PMedCast. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest for the show, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. Have a great day and until next time.